Thank you, David. I think it's uh, I think it's fair to say that most of us enjoy, or at least find it interesting, reading or listening to the stories of people whose lives have been transformed by God. During Holy Week this year, on the Wednesday evening, we, we showed the short film The Cross featuring Billy Graham. But that uh, short film included the stories of these two Grammy-nominated recording artists, Lecrae Moore and Lacey Strum. And it was fascinating for those who were here that night listening to their stories of how God changed their lives. And then last Sunday night here, we also had the privilege of listening to Alice and Nigel tell us their stories of how they came to faith and how they are seeking to follow Jesus in their everyday lives. Well, as part of our Up, In and Out series uh, this morning, which is continuing to read our way through Acts, we come to the story of someone whose life is turned upside down and inside out by God, someone who encountered God, and nothing was ever the same again for them and for lots of others. Here is someone whose up, in, and out relationship was radically overhauled. In terms of Acts and even the rest of the New Testament, this conversion story that we're about to hear is so important, it's so significant, it's so influential that the author of Acts, which is Luke, he records this story three times. For the first time in chapter 9, and then he repeats it in chapters 22 and 26. As a storyteller, Dr. Luke doesn't tend to waste words. As one commentator has written, only an event of greatest importance would merit such repetition by an author whose hallmark is brevity and concision. And therefore, this event that he goes out of his way to tell three times must be a landmark event. Must be. If you have a Bible, please turn with me to Acts chapter 9. It's page 1102 in our Pew Bibles. Three weeks ago, we looked at and we thought about the murder of Stephen, the so-called first Christian martyr. Now, I know that we made the point then that dying for your faith is still a current risk in reality. But what happened in Kenya 10 days ago surely and tragically reminds us of that fact. The Archbishop of Canterbury and the Pope spoke about it in their Easter sermons. Even David Cameron, in his Easter message, said, quote, it is truly shocking that Christians are still tortured and killed because of their faith. And I don't know about you, but reading comments like the one I'm about to show you have really humbled and challenged me during these past 10 days. Among the dead were 13 Christian union members gathered for a pre-dawn prayer meeting. One of the dead was found still on his knees. See, Stephen died for being a Christian in the first century. But so did Leah Fanula. 
and 147 others in the 21st century. People are still dying simply because they're Christians. But back to Acts. Because as we read about Stephen's killing, which we did three weeks ago, as we read about it in Acts chapter 7, we were introduced to a man, a man named Saul. And so we're going to pick up his story at the beginning of chapter 9. So here goes. Verse 1, meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. Now Saul, I know, I know lots of us are familiar with him. But when we come across him here, this is the first time we've been introduced to him. Well, not so much here, but in chapter 7, we know that he was the guy who looked after the coats of those who were killing Stephen. So Saul wasn't just present at Stephen's murder, he was complicit in it. The Bible actually says Saul was there giving this death, this murder, this killing, his approval. Saul hated Christians. Now this, this disgust was more than a feeling. It went beyond mere emotion. He expressed this hatred in action. He hunted down those who belonged to the way, which is how Christianity is described in verse 2, partly out of this whole idea that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. So people that followed Jesus were said to be people that followed the way. And Saul hunted down those who were part of this movement. Saul was a messed up individual. He's evil. He was Al-Shabaab terrorist-like. But just before we go any further with his story, I want to state something we've said before. And it's worth remembering. It's worth repeating. No one is beyond the reach of God's love and forgiveness. No one. Not even those who breathe out murderous threats against the people of God or walk into a university and gun them down. That's an incredible thought. Saul would later describe himself in his own writings as the worst of sinners. That's how, that's how he described himself. I'm the worst of sinners. And I'm pretty sure we can all think of some people we would like to tag with that label. But Saul's story reminds us that even they, whoever you have in mind, is not beyond redemption. As it turns out, Saul's on a journey, a literal proximate 200-mile journey from Jerusalem to Damascus. And he's got a specific purpose in mind as he makes this journey. He's wanting, as I've said, to round up the followers of the way and drag them back to Jerusalem and throw them in prison. That, that's his intent. But as he approaches Damascus, his best laid plans are wrecked. Totally wrecked. As he's confronted by this unnatural phenomenon, a light from heaven flashes around him and he hears a voice. Verse 4, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Now, I want you to notice this is personal. 
And it's not just personal because Saul hears his name. It's personal because this voice refers to me. Which is why Saul then asks the obvious question as he lays face down in the dirt. Who are you? And the response he got must have sent shockwaves through his system. I am Jesus, the one you're persecuting. Now that answer meant two things. Both of these things unnerving for Paul. The first, while he was attacking the church, Jesus felt the pain. You see, whenever the church gets a kicking, Jesus feels it. Why? Because the church is his body. Which even for us is worth remembering. Because you see, whenever we have a go at the church, or criticize or speak negatively about other Christians, denominations, other expressions of discipleship, we need to realize that Jesus feels that. Paul wasn't simply persecuting the church. He was attacking Jesus. The second issue for Saul to face an attempt to get his head round was the jolting discovery that Jesus of Nazareth is alive. That his disciples were right. They were right after all in proclaiming and shouting about and banging on about the fact that he had resurrected from the dead. Now, I know there are some people who make a big deal of the fact that Saul only seems to have heard a voice. Didn't actually see anyone. And if you look at verse 7, you read that those who were with Saul only heard the sound but saw no one. But if you flick over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, you don't need to do it, it's on the screen, you find that whenever Paul was writing about the resurrection of Jesus and whenever he was referring to the people who Jesus had appeared to, to Peter, to the 12, to more than 500, then James and then all the apostles, and then this is what uh, Saul, Paul then writes in verse 8, and last of all, he appeared to me also. You see, Saul was clear about what? or who he saw that afternoon, the risen Jesus met him on the road to Damascus. And his life is set on a completely different trajectory. He was forever changed, converted. Now I wanna kind of pause there for a moment because there is no doubt, and we have said this before, that Paul's conversion was atypical. It was a unique to Saul experience. But there are also certain aspects of his story that are typical and integral to our stories, those of us who claim to follow the way. And what I want to do is based on Dr. Luke's Acts 9 account of Saul's story, I want to suggest or highlight seven features of Saul's conversion that virtually every Christian here shares with Saul. 
and in their own stories of transformation. So here you are. Here are seven things, characteristics, that I reckon all of us who are part of the way share with Saul. The first is the reality of what's been called, and I love this phrase, the divine initiative in conversion. You see, this is is so important. Jesus found Saul as opposed to the other way around. Saul was not looking for and did not go to Damascus searching for Jesus. In fact, the exact opposite is true. But the thing is, Jesus sought him out. Jesus pursued him, located him. Jesus turned Saul's life around. And maintaining this biblical truth and perspective reminds us that a rescued and renewed life, which many of us have embraced, it's a gift. We need to remember that. We don't deserve to be converted. We do nothing to warrant it. The hound of heaven tracks us down, realigns our thinking, redirects our lives, reshapes our priorities, refocuses our vision. And all of that is grace. And as Saul would later write, it is by grace that you've been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. It's a gift of God. Now, I know that this emphasis on divine initiative can and does create all sorts of other extra additional questions and issues for lots of people. Kind of sends theologians' heads spinning. Where and when does human kind of inquiry and responsibility come into this? I recognize all of that. I'm not oblivious to the challenge that this, this point in itself raises, nor naive about the hurdles it creates for some. But I want to stress and hold tight to the idea and this picture of a God who pursues us. A God who takes the lead. A God who sets out to save. And one of the main reasons for that is because it's that that gives me hope. You see, if the initiative lies with a gracious God who can transform the worst of sinners, I will not lose heart regarding the fate of people today. They may seem to me to be increasingly uninterested, even determinately resistant against Christianity and against Jesus and against faith in Jesus. But if God is the one taking the initiative, if God is the one pursuing, if God is the one who sets out to save, I have hope. I have hope. Saul was converted as a result of divine initiative, and so was I. That much we all have in common. The second shared feature of conversion is is a personal encounter with Jesus. Saul's was dramatic. I I, I realize that. It, It was exceptional. But a personal engagement with Jesus Christ is crucial in every transformed life. Christianity without Christ is a nonsense. And the need to face up to and confront the life and teaching, and death, and resurrection of Jesus is is vital. In Saul's story, he met 
Jesus. And in every conversion story and process, there has got to be this coming together. The context will be different. The specifics will vary. But the need to meet Jesus doesn't change, doesn't alter. And lots of people here, the two on that film, Alice and Nigel last Sunday night, shared stories of how they encountered Jesus. And that's why the church has got to consistently and constantly present, exalt, and raise the profile of Christ. That's why we run Christianity Explored. That's why we run Discovering Jesus Through Asian Eyes, because we want to attempt to introduce people, not to this church, to Jesus. The way, the truth, the life. Saul's conversion involved a personal encounter. And so has every conversion ever since. Third thing is the role of others. Do you know what I love, and it was true about Lecrae and Lacey and about Alice and Nigel? Whenever people are given the opportunity to tell their story, the influence and impact of other people is always mentioned. It's always acknowledged. Most of them will recall people who have been and and possibly still are significant, people who were there at the beginning, people who helped them take their first steps on this journey, people who introduced them to church, people who prayed for them, people who prayed with them, people who were there when they needed them, people who believed in them, even when maybe others didn't. And in Saul's story, there were people just like that, Ananias, Barnabas, two literal godsends who were there in Saul's life and spoke into it at just the right time. As Saul was reeling from what happened to him on the Damascus road, God provided these two men to help him make sense of his newfound faith. Now Ananias, he, he was initially deeply suspicious of Saul and rightly so. Saul's reputation went before him. Ananias had heard of Saul's treatment of other Christians and his current intention to arrest more. But God, you see, softened Ananias' heart. God gave Ananias the courage to go and help this new convert, this new believer. And whenever Ananias first met Saul, the very first words that came out of his mouth were these, Brother Saul which must have been, must have been music to Saul's ears. Because here was someone who just in two words said, I accept you. I accept you. And Barnabas was another person who accepted Saul. Because as you can imagine, whenever Saul came back to Jerusalem after the Damascus Road experience, the rumor mill had been working overtime. And so as Saul tries to join the disciples in Jerusalem, they're suspicious of him. They're afraid of him. Now, if you were here a number of weeks ago in one of our family Sundays, we told Barnabas' story. But as Saul comes back to Jerusalem, and as he tries to join in with what God is doing there amongst the disciples there, everybody's suspicious of him. Because his reputation had gone before him, they knew what this guy was like. They knew what he was about. They knew what he had set out to do in Damascus. But Barnabas steps in. 
And Barnabas sticks an arm around his shoulder and takes him to the apostles. And Barnabas tells Saul's story for him, becomes, if you like, his advocate. And he shares how Saul had been spoken to by Jesus and how Saul had then gone and spoken for Jesus in Damascus when he reached there. And Barnabas welcomed Saul, believed him, encouraged him, and it's clear from the rest of this story that we read in Acts that Saul felt accepted by these guys. I'm absolutely sure that every Christian sitting here today could identify some person, one person, probably many people who were profoundly influential in their journey to faith and their journey since coming to faith. And we should thank God for the role of others. Saul did. I know I do. The fourth feature of Saul's conversion and of ours, and this is, this is where it starts to get a wee bit uncomfortable, is the call to suffering. And although in so many ways and at so many levels, and I'm sure we all wish it was different, we've got to recognize that suffering and persecution are indispensable features of authentic Christianity. I know that's not popular to say that. Right at the start of his Christian journey, Saul is informed, look at verse 16. Right at the start, Saul is informed that he's going to suffer for the name of Christ. And as we all know, that becomes a major aspect of Saul's story. And although Saul went on to encounter more suffering, certainly more physical suffering than the vast majority of disciples of Jesus Christ will ever know. But let's not forget that a key part of every conversion process is a call to suffer. You know, whenever Jesus explained to people what was involved in following him, he often referred to the need, you got to take up a cross. You got you to take up your, you got to deny yourself. You got to die to self. This is going to cost. Suffering is part and parcel of the Christian journey. Jesus also said that if people persecuted him, which they did, then his disciples should expect to be persecuted as well. And throughout the rest of the New Testament, we discover time and time again, verses like this, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I find verses like this so uncomfortable. When was the last time I honestly suffered for my faith. Because everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. But although it is a core feature of conversion, I don't want anybody to see it as a, a negative thing or to see persecution and suffering for Jesus in a negative light. Because to suffer for Jesus is ironically a blessing. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. And blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. God will not look you over for medals, diplomas, or degrees, but for scars. In Saul's life and body, there would be an ever 
increasing presence of scars. But you see, whenever he came to faith in Jesus, he was told, he was told you're gonna have to suffer. All Christians who have been transformed by Jesus receive this calling. The fifth component present in Saul's conversion and present in ours is then the commission to witness. You see, transformation and transmission go together. This is not an individualistic experience that Saul is simply to savor and keep to himself. Look at verse 15. He's told, he's instructed to carry the name of Jesus to Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. And, and I know I'm stating the obvious, but every single Christian has been commissioned by Jesus to go make disciples of all nations. We've all been commissioned to witness. We've been empowered to witness in Jerusalem, Judea, and to the ends of the earth. Saul grasped this, and out of his Damascus Road life-changing encounter with Jesus, he immediately, or at least almost immediately, it would seem, verse 20, went and started preaching and explaining that Jesus was the Son of God. That's what those of us who walk this way have been called to do. And the final two aspects of Saul's turnaround, there's five, here's the six and seven, that all of us, if not all of us, share is that he was filled with the Holy Spirit and baptized, both there in verses 17 and 18. See, each person who's converted, and we've said this, and I'm going to repeat it again, and we've said it right through the journey through Acts so far, every single person who is converted receives the gift of the Holy Spirit who indwells us, who empowers us, who produces fruit in our lives, who intends and wants and desires to make us more like Jesus. Every Christian has been filled with the Holy Spirit. And we need to go on being filled with the Holy Spirit. And then Saul is baptized as a symbol of a transformed life and as a public witness to Jesus. And I know this, this subject, issue, step of obedience, whatever you want to call it, has come up quite a few times recently. Came up last week, came up this week. And if there is anybody here who kind of wants or is thinking about this and wants to talk to us about it and about taking this step and going through with this, then please do speak to us afterwards. But Saul... When he met Jesus, life was transformed by him, received the Holy Spirit, and was then baptized. Or last week, Easter Sunday, as we looked at Acts 2 and Peter's speech, repent and be baptized. So there you have it. Saul's Damascus Road conversion was dramatic. It was amazing. Yes, it was unique to him in many ways. But if you take a step back, and if you reflect I think there are seven things that are typical of so many people's story here. God pursued you. You encountered Jesus. 
Other people were significant and still are in your journey. You're called to suffer. You're commissioned to witness. You've been filled with the Holy Spirit. You've been baptized. And if you're a Christian here this morning, rejoice in these things. And if you're a not yet Christian, then I hope this explains in some way what's involved in the process. And what we pray you will experience.